listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is our day to get to study the Word of God with Pastor Askins in searching the scriptures in the June-July issue of the Lutheran Witness. We're going to dig into that in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us in studio, the Reverend Roy Askins. He's managing editor of the Lutheran Witness and the guy we get to study God's Word with on a monthly basis, except for this issue is the June-July issue. So I guess we don't get to get together next month, huh? No, I'm sorry. That's no, sad. No fun times next month. We should like so. do a special edition. Just throw something out there. Just like a summary of all the things we've done so far. Yeah. <laughs> Made-up edition of the... Or, or, or just go. all the questions we didn't get to in the uh, last... <laughs> that <laughs> might be longer than 25 minutes. I was going to say, that's going to take a good five hours. <laughs> So we're continuing with this theme of the creed, right? That's correct. So we're continuing on uh, working through the various uh, phrases and words in the creed and showing how they grow from the word of God. This is not something we created or invented, but in fact are the teaching of God's word. So So where in the creed are we going today? So today we are not quite finishing the second article of the creed. I, I was just looking at this and realized that I left for myself, from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead for an entire Bible study. So this is going to be interesting. And, Have fun. And, uh, yeah, that's right. In August. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so today we're actually doing uh, his ascension and what uh, theologians refer to as his session at the right hand of God. That is, he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And we're going to dig into the scriptural passages uh, about that and what that, that is all about. That sounds fantastic. Shall we dig in? Let's do it. All right. Question number one. Read Acts 1, 4 through 11. Where does Christ ascend? What did the disciples expect? What does he promise to send to the apostles? In parentheses, see also John 16, 5 through 15. You, you didn't think I was actually going to only have one Bible verse for a question here, did you? Of course not. <laughs> okay, let's start with Acts chapter uh, 1, verses 4 through 11. And while staying with them, he, that is Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So that's our passage uh, from Acts chapter 1. Uh, this is, uh, of course, Acts was a little bit of context here. Acts was also written by uh, Luke who wrote the gospel. So we have some, some close parallels to the end of the gospel of Luke here. Uh, regarding the ascension, but here we're, we're getting the full picture of Christ's ascension uh, as they watch, as the disciples watch him 
uh, go into heaven. He ascends. So that's kind of the first question. Where does he ascend? He ascends into heaven and a cloud covers him, uh, hides him from their sight. Now there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion of the cloud. Obviously there's the physical cloud, but there's clouds also all throughout the Old Testament. Um, uh, clouds, God shows up in, in the cloud, uh, leads the people of Israel through the wilderness, uh, through clouds, uh, such things like this. Well, here Christ ascends into heaven and he is hidden by this cloud. They don't see him any longer. Now, uh, as they're standing there on the mountain, the disciples have some expectations about what's going to happen, right? They ask him, are you going to, at this time, restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? So here they're thinking still, you know, after three years of ministry and teaching with Jesus, right? Uh, they're still thinking, earthly kingdom, he's going to come reign, you know, he's going to come kick out the Romans, Israel's going to uh, become a political earthly power, uh, This is, we're going to hopefully, you know, who, who sits at his right hand, left hand, I mean, all that whole discussion. Uh, in fact, it's really kind of amazing in, in all, uh, I guess, at least the synoptics, Jesus three times predicts his death and resurrection for them. And even now, even now, after they've seen him resurrected, like crucified, resurrected, sitting here, standing here before them, uh, teaching them, they're still thinking uh, in terms of an earthly kingdom. He says, nope, uh, this is not for you to worry about right now, um, but you're going to be my witnesses. And then he promises here to send uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we'll get to that uh, John passage here real quick. But uh, the Holy Spirit, he's going to send them the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to be uh, the one that uh, brings the remembrance, all that he has taught them. And then through this Holy Spirit, they will understand and become his witnesses. Uh, I think, um, I don't know, maybe I'm uh, a little bit uh, perhaps rebellious on this, but I think we should call our missionaries witnesses instead because this is, uh, in fact, how our Lord talks about going out and, and uh, proclaiming his word to the world. He talks about us as witnesses, not as those who uh, go out and do great things, but witness to what Christ and what he has done, witnessing to him, right? A witness doesn't have his own story. What does a witness do? He witnesses to someone else's story. And this is exactly what the disciples and the apostles were to do. Uh, they were to witness to the story uh, of Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. So uh, that's... Uh, here, they, they go out then from there is, is the rest of the book of Acts. We'll talk about how they serve as his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So what does he promise to send to the apostles? And this is, is this the John text? This is the John text, yeah. <laughs> so this is John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. And let's go ahead and read this too. Uh, this is, uh, in terms of context, as you're listening here, this is Jesus just before his crucifixion again. This is his last teaching that he's giving to the apostles just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, John 17 is the high priestly prayer. That's the prayer he prays and then says, let us go from here. And then they go into the... the, the um, Actually, he might have said, let us go before then, but this is high priestly prayer right before he is, um, he is uh, betrayed. So, John chapter 16, verse 5. But, no, uh, but now I am going to him who sent me, and Jesus said. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said to you that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. As Lutherans, uh, we tend to talk about the Holy Spirit as the shy person of the Trinity. We don't put a lot of emphasis on, uh, don't tend to uh, overemphasize uh, the work that the Holy Spirit does, but of course is very vital and important uh, to the work of the church. And the reason we say this, though, is uh, the Holy Spirit's work is to point us beyond himself to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is always pointing us to Jesus and to Jesus' work. He takes what is mine. Jesus receives all authority in heaven and earth given to Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit takes what is Jesus' and delivers that to the church. Uh, he is the means by which uh, we receive uh, Jesus' uh, atoning sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit takes what is Jesus, declares it to us, uh, but he is always pushing us to look to Jesus. And that's what we see time and time again. Well, here, what Jesus is promising to the disciples is this gift of the Holy Spirit. That's who the helper is in verse 7. That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, And the Holy Spirit is the one who will, through their preaching, convict the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness, right? Uh, Sin, because the world, uh, we are all sinful, and we need to be shown our sin, convicted of our sin. Righteousness, because Jesus died that we might be declared righteous. And then judgment, he's coming to judge the world. So the Holy Spirit is the one who uh, will... um, Uh, work through these apostles preaching, and he is the one that will guide them as they preach to speak the words of God, and then uh, ultimately give us, uh, through these apostles, uh, the four gospels as well, and then uh, also through St. Paul, uh, the one through whom we receive uh, the letters of Paul as well. So the Holy Spirit is their kind of key key promise of Jesus that through him uh, the disciples will will, uh, uh, learn all truth and be guided into all truth. So question number two, we have uh, about, oh, four minutes here, three, four minutes in this segment to try to dig into this one. Question number two, read Luke uh, chapter 24, verses 36 through 43 and 50 to 53, and also Ephesians chapter 1, 19 to 21. Does Jesus retain his flesh after his ascension? Can we say a man sits at the right hand of God? Why? So this is an important uh, teaching and doctrine of the church uh, that that we, and I'm going to just give away the answer here at the end, that Jesus, uh, that a man does sit at the right hand of God because Jesus is both God and man and retains this, this, uh, these two natures, right? He doesn't reject his human nature uh, after his ascension, but he, re- he remains both God and man. And so how do we know this? Well, let's look at a couple of these passages. Let's look at the Luke 24 passage. Uh, this is uh, into the Gospel of Luke. He's uh, resurrected. He's now appearing to his disciples after his resurrection. As they were talking about these things, that is, the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They've done this previously, right? They did this <laughs> like they were in the boat, right? And they see Jesus walking on the water. and They're like, ah, oh, ghost, right? So they're startled. We see a spirit. Uh, and he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? He's told this, told them this time and time again, right? Mm-hmm. I will be, I will rise again from the dead. See my hands and my, and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So first off, hands and feet, right? He's telling them, look for the marks, right? I was crucified. You can see the marks. I'm the same man. Not only can you see, however, that I have uh, marks on my hands and my feet from the nails and, the, and the, the, the spear in my side, but I am also not a spirit. I still retain this flesh and blood. It's also amazing as we reflect on this to think that not only does he retain his flesh and blood, but he also retains the 
marks of what he did in that flesh and blood, right? Uh, the marks of atoning for our sins, that his perfect resurrected body contains also the marks of his sacrifice for us. And this is what he holds up, giving away a little bit of the end of the study here. This is what he holds up on our behalf uh, before God, right? So that when, when uh, God doesn't look at us in wrath, why? Because he sees us through the marks of the nails and the spear in Jesus' side. Okay, so... Sorry, I totally jumped off the text. Back to verse 4, 40, I should say. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Okay, so he's demonstrating, I'm here, flesh and blood. Uh, now let's move to the ascension, verse 50. And then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted his hands. He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So he resurrected. He shows them his his flesh, blood. I'm a, a real physical person. And then uh, was ascended into heaven heaven as this uh, physical flesh and blood person. So, can we say that a man sits at the right hand of God? Yes, indeed we can. And it is uh, absolutely vitally important that we be able to say that. And why is that? Well, that's from the Ephesians chapter 1 passage uh, where St. Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he is talking about uh, the hope we have in Jesus Christ, the glorious inheritance of his saints. And he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly place. Okay, we now have one who shares both in the divine nature of God, because he is fully God, and yet also in our human flesh. Both of these natures together sits at the right hand of God, that is the position of power and authority, as we're going to talk about here in a minute, uh, for our sake and on our behalf. Uh, and from this position where he stands between us as an intermediary, between us and God, he rules all things for the good of his church. And that's what we're going to dig into as we get into the later questions. Very good. We have more to learn as we're studying the Word of God in Searching the Scriptures in the June-July issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures <laughs> with Pastor Askins, managing editor of the Lutheran Witness. Uh, we are. Are you ready to go on to question three for mm-hmm. the June July issue? Let's do it. All right. Uh, read Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verses nineteen to twenty. What does Jesus promise the disciples about his ongoing presence, and where do we find his presence in the church today? And of course, see also yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Yes, this is always my goal to get people to look at more Bible passages. That's a great idea. I, you know, I'm not very uh, subtle in it either. So. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, so this passage is, of course, well known to many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Uh, Jesus has been resurrected again. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, So a couple of things here. Uh, We hear in this passage, see, once again, Jesus declaring all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And that's actually from verse uh, 18. And uh, uh, we see this elsewhere in the scriptures talking about uh, after his suffering, death, and resurrection, uh, he receives the name that is above every name, all authority given to him. Uh, And now uh, on the basis of this authority, he's sending forth his disciples uh, to uh, um, teach all nations. And a couple of corrections here. I know I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to go for it anyways because it's a personal pet peeve of mine. Uh, <laughs> verse 19, everybody, it all begins with the imperative go. So this is also the the uh, inner editor coming out in me. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, oh, boy. Uh, it, it begins with an imperative. It's actually not there in the Greek. It does not say go, therefore. It says while you are going. It presumes that you are already out in the world being who you are as a child of God, living within your vocation, loving your neighbor, serving those around you. While you are going, while you are out in the world, uh, of course, we have here make disciples, and that's an okay translation. Uh, But we can also uh, say, instead of make, to cause someone to become a pupil, right? In other words, Hmm. um, the the point here is not really on the, the emphasis really is not here on the making of disciples, but in fact, the way in which this is done, right? So while you are going and making disciples of all nations, uh, this happens in two ways, uh, by baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Okay, uh, so here, uh, this is how the Holy uh, Jesus, he, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He now sends his disciples with this authority to, to teach the nations uh, the gospel and the message of what he has done. In fact, uh, if you think about it, this is in, in a bit of a, a fulfillment of the Lord's prayer even. If you ever thought about that, uh, you pray that everything that is done in heaven will also be done upon earth. Well, in heaven and earth, all this authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And now he is making this uh, take place through his church as the church goes forth and teaches. And how do they do this? Well, they do this through uh, baptizing teaching because, uh, according to his promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that is the answer to this kind of initial question. What promise does Jesus give? He promises that he will be with them as they're going forth baptizing and teaching. Now, this is remarkable, remarkably comforting for us and also part of the reason why I like the, the language of witness, uh, notwithstanding other denominations who might have used this term also, other, uh, other peoples that might have used this term as well. Well, um, because the emphasis here is on what Jesus is doing and less on what I'm doing. A bit of a little anecdote here. I know I always struggled. I mean, I did various uh, door-to-door evangelism programs as a kid and I always struggled knocking on doors because I was always afraid of saying the wrong thing. What if I said something that really like offended this person? They never, ever stepped foot in a church again. And then I was the cause of that person's refusing to hear, right? Because you well, have that cosmic power. Yeah, because I exactly like <laughs> as though I have that cosmic power, right? The point here is that it's actually all in fact Christ doing and Christ working. All I do is simply witness to what he has done. And then because of his promise to be with us, uh, as as we're going to hear in just a minute through his word and sacrament, uh, he is the one that actually uh, brings about the creation of faith and saves and redeems us. So uh, uh, it was a a lesson learned when I I started digging a little bit more into these passages and understanding them a little more deeply. So uh, where do we find his presence in the church today? Well, let's uh, jump straight to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Uh, St. Paul is here 
here talking about the Lord's Supper, and he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it is not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So Christ's continuing, ongoing presence here among us occurs as his word is preached, as his word is proclaimed, as this authority that he gives to his church is exercised uh, through the, the pastors that he calls to serve his church. And it also uh, is there as he is present among us in his body and blood that we receive for the forgiveness of our sins. Very good. Shall we move on? Question Let's four? do it. All right. Read Psalm, and there are several. Psalm 89, verse 13. Uh, Psalm 118, verse 15 to 16. And Psalm 139, 9 to 10. What is the right hand of God? Is Jesus literally located in a physical location, or does it indicate something else? Uh, let's dive in. Let's actually just start with uh, the passages here. Um, this is. Uh, let's go to Psalm 89. We'll start there and kind of look at uh, at this passage and how this passage describes and gives us a picture of the right hand of God. So if you go to Psalm 89, of course the key verse is, is verse 13 where we actually have the reference. But before we get there, we can look at um, a right hand, left hand, how, or right hand, how the right hand of God uh, works. In fact, incidentally, I, I'm a left-handed person, so I struggle a bit with this right hand, left hand <laughs> thing. It's always the right hand. I guess I get it, but it's a little disappointing in some fashion or another. But uh, the, what is God doing here in Psalm 89? Well, uh, first off, the psalmist is declaring uh, uh, thanks to God, praising God for his steadfast love, um, this love that endures forever, uh, his faithfulness endures forever, the steadfast love of God uh, never ends, uh, and this is a, a covenant, a promise that God has made with his chosen one, uh, and which ultimately is then fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay. So then as we continue going down this verse, uh, through this, this psalm, Psalm uh, five, uh, 89 verse 5, 6, 7 uh, going on, you see uh, the Lord uh, in kind of military language conquering on behalf of Israel, right? Uh, God is mighty, Lord of hosts, he is mighty, he rules the raging of the sea, right? It's a mighty arm, he crushes Rahab like a carcass, scatters his enemies with his mighty arm. So it's very much a, a uh, military metaphor. Uh, here and then verse 13 you have a mighty arm strong is your your hand uh, high your right hand right so this right hand is this powerful mighty thing that acts on behalf of the psalmist here and that the psalmist is asking uh, for God uh, to to act on his behalf okay so once again an indication of God's power and authority well, let's jump on to verse uh, Psalm 8 118 now this is the next uh, passage Psalm 118 verses 15 through 16 and we're going to see a very similar, uh, a similar uh, language here. Once again, a uh, connection to the steadfast love right at the beginning, Psalm 118, verse 1, his steadfast love endures forever. And then you have 2, 3, and 4, where we just get this repetition of a steadfast love endures forever, which in our minds, we struggle sometimes to understand this repetition, but it works really well to help you memorize it better, right? <laughs> so steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Um, and then you have the psalmist in verse 5, uh, in distress, calling on the Lord, right? Uh, where are you, right? Um, I shall, uh, but yet he's calling on the Lord and confident that the Lord will provide for him. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me, verse 7, okay? Uh, verse 10, the nations surround the psalmist. Uh, they surround him, him him on, uh, in on every side. Uh, but finally, we get to verse 15 and 16, where we have glad songs of salvation and the right hand of the Lord does valiantly, right? The right hand of the Lord exalts, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So it's the right hand of the Lord that, that rescues him, once again, very much a military metaphor of the right hand, God's uh, God's power and authority working on behalf of his people. Okay, so last uh, last passage here, Psalm one thirty nine, verses nine through ten. 
Um, we talk, we have here in this passage, the psalmist uh, trying to hide from God and he can't. Verse 1-9, you have searched me and know me. I see, you know when I sit down, when I rise up, you know my thoughts from afar, right? He can't even hide in Sheol, right? Even in death. If I make my bed in Sheol, guess what? God's there too. There's no hiding from God. Um, and yet, as we look at verses 9 through 10, uh, it is confidence in the right hand of God. So if the wings of the morning, if, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you're hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. So here, a little bit less martial metaphor, but uh, certainly confidence in God's right hand uh, to protect and guide guide him throughout his his life. So what we're seeing here is the right hand of a God is not of God is not exactly a physical location, uh, but rather a way of speaking of God's power and might, a way of speaking of how God acts on behalf of His church. Now, why is this important? Why is this a big deal? Well, there are those Christians who teach that Jesus's physical location is literally located. At the right hand of God, right? That Jesus cannot, uh, he's, he's circumscribed, is, I guess is the language we could use, where he cannot leave this position of the right hand of God. His physical body stays there, which is then why, according to these, uh, these Christians, uh, he's not truly present in the Lord's Supper for, for his church. Because if his body is located in one place, guess what? It can't be on the altar of every Christian church throughout all of creation, right? So, of course, this is false teaching. This is not what we believe. Um, we believe that uh, Christ's body uh, is not, once again, a physical location, but is, in fact, uh, God's working uh, for his church all throughout the world uh, on behalf and for the good of his church. We're ready for question five. Yes. <laughs> Read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. What does Jesus do while seated at the right hand of God? And what does it mean that he intercedes for us? See also 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 1 John 2, verses 1 to 2, Romans eight thirty four. Okay. Let's, uh, so Jesus is at the right hand of God. He has all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. What does he do with this, right? That's the, the purpose of this question. What does Jesus do with all this uh, work he does at the right hand of God? Why is he there? Well, let's, let's read this passage from Hebrews and, uh, and then dig into this. The former priests were many in number, the writer of the Hebrew says, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So here in this passage uh, to the Hebrews, uh, we have uh, at this point that what the Heater, Hebrews, uh, writer of the Hebrews is doing is he's comparing Jesus to all these Old Testament fa- uh, the figures, all these Old Testament uh, uh, things like the temple and the uh, tabernacle, and he's showing how Jesus is greater than all of these. So in this passage, uh, the he- writer of the Hebrews is actually comparing Jesus to Melchizedek, right? I love that name, Melchizedek. I almost named one of my poor sons Melchizedek, um, but I figure it's a bit <laughs> presumptuous to name a son king of righteousness. That's what it means. It's like, eh. That'd be awesome, but anyways, <laughs> poor kid. Uh, uh, he got Wolfgang instead, so. That's good. That works. That's a good one. Yeah. I like it. 
I like it. Um, so uh, Jesus being compared to Melchizedek and being shown to be greater than Melchizedek, right? Uh, Melchizedek is, of course, the Old Testament figure that Abraham offers a sacrifice to. Um, he is uh, a priest forever uh, in the order of Melchizedek is what, what um, uh, Jesus is described as. But Jesus is the one who is greater than Melchizedek and fulfills uh, this, this uh, figure that is known as Melchizedek. And he does this uh, and becomes by this an intermediary, a mediator, one who intercedes uh, for us, uh, for for humanity, sinful humanity. And he does this by offering up his own self as a sacrifice. So all throughout the Old Testament, we had high priests that were appointed to do this. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, they take an animal and they sacrifice the animal for the people. Here in this context, Jesus offers up himself as the sacrifice, right? Uh, he doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He himself becomes the sacrifice and by the sacrifice is made perfect. And now th- this is just amazing. This is why the two natures of Jesus are so vital and the two natures that continue uh, even after his ascension in heaven because now one who is both fully God and fully man has himself uh, s- uh, sacrificed himself as the one who stands between God and man. He is, I mean, if you can consider it like a mediator, an arbiter, right? One who stands between the two parties and reconciles them together. Well, Jesus is that one who shares in the nature of both parties, right? And sacrifices himself to, to bring these two parties together. So this is what we see here occurring in the Hebrews passage. Um, if you look at the passage from 1 Timothy and, uh, or 1 Timothy, 1 John and Romans, you'll see uh, greater, more language, more discussion of uh, this, this idea of mediator and intercessor. Do we have time to dig into those a little bit? Or? We are all out of time. <laughs> but that is exactly what the 1 Timothy 2 text says. There, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, exactly. the man Jesus Christ. It well, is... Oh, man, I'm so sorry we're out of time. Great study in God's Word, taking a look at uh, continuing in the creed and searching the scriptures in the June-July issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor for The Lutheran Witness. Thanks so much for joining us, Pastor Askins. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.